Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The October 2021 argument session is now in the books, and it was historic. The justices returned to the courtroom for in-person oral arguments for the first time since March of 2020. But things did not pick up exactly the way the justices left off. The justices used a slightly different format. After the lawyer's regular stint at the lectern in which any justice could ask a question at any time, there was a chance for each justice to ask questions in order of seniority as they'd done during the phone arguments during the pandemic. And the arguments were playing to a much smaller gallery. The court's building is still closed to the public So attendance is limited for the most part to full-time Supreme Court reporters, law clerks, and court staff. Joining me today to provide a glimpse into how the October sitting operated and some of the highlights is Mark Walsh, who writes the very popular review from the courtroom feature for SCOTUS blog. Mark, thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. Thanks for having me back on uh, SCOTUS Talk. Can you set the stage for us before we get into the nitty gritty with some of your initial observations about the justices return to the courtroom and and what it was like. Sure. So um, I think this maybe announcement, uh, you know, came as a little bit of a surprise. Um, We all feared that maybe they were going to have to do telephone arguments a a little while longer. Um, But I think it shows how much they wanted to get back to the courtroom, uh, but with some, uh, you know, very, uh, serious uh, measures uh, to make sure uh, that they can uh, mitigate any uh, COVID risks. And um, so that included uh, Justice Kavanaugh being absent uh, uh, after his positive tests just uh, a few days before the term opened. Um, uh, so uh, in the courtroom, the, uh, the bar section, the the chairs have been pretty much removed. There's the four uh, lawyers tables and they've been pushed back pretty much to the uh, uh, bar that separates the the public gallery and the the bar section. Um, So there's quite a bit more distance and uh, between the bench and the lectern. And uh, the lawyers who are arguing a a case, uh, we've had, two cases on most days of the first sitting, um, but only one set of lawyers are in the courtroom at a time. Um, and that is included uh, sometimes a third table has been in use uh, by the government uh, arguing as uh, an amicus. Um, but uh, you know, that at the changeover, that's when the lawyers swap out and, and, and the lawyers who are waiting are, are in the lawyer's lounge. And then in the public gallery, you have about 20 uh, to 25 reporters, those of us who are privileged enough to have uh, Supreme Court uh, hard passes, creden- credentials. Uh, there's two or three artists who have those, and including our own Art, Art Lean, and uh, they've been there, uh, uh, not all three of them at the, the same time, but an Art uh, uh, has been there most of the time. And then uh, what I wasn't sure going in is like, who else, you know, they, they said essential court personnel on the, on the first day, we did have some guests, 
of uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was uh, taking her seat for oral argument for, from the bench for the first time. Uh, and that included her husband, uh, Jesse Barrett, and her parents in the public gallery. Uh, her husband was in the VIP section. Uh, a few uh, spouses of, of the justices were present. And then uh, probably most uh, of the law clerks uh, uh, were in the public gallery with us, which is not something we're used to. Uh, usually they're uh, across the courtroom when, when they're present. And then uh, they're usually only, I think in normal times present kind of at the beginning and then for some of the big arguments and then for some of the opinion days, but otherwise they're kind of expected to be back in chambers working. But, but the law clerks have been present. Uh, uh, the numbers have gone down a little bit, but uh, they've, they've been uh, a presence uh, in this first sitting. Yeah, the one thing that really has been striking to me has been looking at the space where the, the tables for the arguing lawyers are. And as you said, they've taken away all of the, the little chairs in which the members of the Supreme Court bar normally sit. And you know, now in the pandemic times, it's really hard to imagine that they used to, in the before times, squeeze as many as 100 people in that space. Right, right. I mean, the, you know, the, the chairs are tightly packed together. Uh, the, the bar section can be packed shoulder to shoulder to the point where, you know, some people are rather uncomfortably uh, seated. And, uh, and the same in the public gallery, they do try to squeeze people in and, and that's obviously not happening now. And in our press section, uh, normally there's uh, what I like to call uh, first class, business class and coach, uh, because there's you know two rows that are really right in the, the courtroom uh, in front of the columns, uh, then some Alco seats, that's business class, and then a large section in the hallway which is coach that can uh, accommodate, uh, you know, more than a hundred reporters, uh, but, but not right now. The other funny thing is that even in our you know, sort of first class press seats in the, in the before times, there were sort of assigned seats. You know, we all sort of sat in the same place more or less for every argument. And that has been kind of upended and you know, we are sort of scattered throughout the courtroom and we have specific places where they've put down little signs where the press are supposed to sit, but it's sort of first come first serve and you know, everyone just sort of sits where there's an opening. Well, um, true, although I've seen you uh, move around a little I've sat in the same spot and, and, and we, you know, and so has uh, someone like Nina Totenberg uh, of NPR, Mark Sherman of AP, that they like to sit in that front row of the public gallery. Um, and, uh, you know, that as, as these at least three months go on that, that the court has said that this is how it's going to be, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that, that goes. Uh, um, I, I like my spot in the second row of, of the gallery. I'm trying to figure out where the best, where the best seat is because from our seats on the side, you can see the justices and the lawyers, but there, there are some seats where if you sit in the, I'll, I'll move on, let us move on and not get too much into the minutia, you, 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 know, you can't always see both the lawyers and all of the justices 
from some of the, the public seats. I do know the artists like having this you know, different perspective. Um, it's a little harder for them to capture the lawyers arguing because they're a little more behind them. Um, uh, but not, not, not so much really based on the angles that they would be at. Um, but anyway. Yes. Moving on. <laughs> I will just say one last thing. One thing that's been hard to get my head around is uh, the fact that while we're in there and, and we're observing and, and playing that role, um, the rest of the world, anyone who wants to, is listening to these arguments live. And I'm used to coming down after many years covering the court and calling up one editor or another and saying, you, you, you can't believe what happened in the courtroom today. And now they can say, yes, well, I, I did listen to it. So for our conversation today, uh, Amy and I uh, have sort of come up with a top 10 list of topics. Um, you, you may remember the David Letterman top 10 list, and there was uh, some member of the court who recently had a list of 10 things that he wanted to discuss about something. I'm, I'm not remembering exactly who that was, but uh, so here are our top 10 list of topics related to uh, the return to the courtroom. One of the one of the top 10, definitely uh, Justice Thomas has been active in oral argument. And those of you who may have only listened to the telephone oral arguments would say, what's the big deal? But those of you who have followed the court for a long time will know that there was as long as a 10 year period in which Justice Thomas did not ask questions. Um, so we had all assumed, but, but then when the court went to the remote argument format in which they asked questions in order of seniority. Justice Thomas was, as I said, an active participant. So we'd all assumed that this sort of hybrid format in which they had the free for all questioning for a half an hour, followed by the opportunity for each justice to ask questions in order of seniority was being added for Justice Thomas's benefit. Kimberly Robinson of, of Bloomberg BNA called it, you know, the does Justice Thomas have any questions rule? Um, but apparently, you know, it wasn't because he surprised us by being the, the very first questioner out of the box in the first argument. And one of the, the things that he'd always said to explain why he hadn't been an active participant before was that he thought that the time should be the lawyer's time to make his or her point um, without being interrupted. But Justice Thomas hasn't hesitated to interrupt the arguing lawyer. So here's Justice Clarence Thomas in Mississippi versus Tennessee. Well, uh, counsel, you um, seem to complain about uh, Tennessee pumping water from Mississippi, but you admit that Tennessee does not enter across the border into Mississippi. Isn't that correct? Justice Thomas, we acknowledge that their wells are physically okay, So, but the case that you cite uh, as an intrusion uh, from, I think it's Tarrant or Tarrant, uh, wasn't that a cross-border situation? Well, yes, Your Honor, and we would say that this is a so I have a question, Mark, um, for you. I want to get your take on this. Do you think that this was something that they actually talked about, or do you think this was a question of, Justice Thomas asked the first question at the, the first oral argument, and it seemed like this was something he liked to do. And the other justices, without even having talked about it, 
or I'll just like, eh, you know, we'll let him have it, which is, which is, which is probably what I think happened. So you think that it was the latter? Yes. I think it was the former because <laughs> I, I just think they must have had some kind of informal conversation uh, about keeping their colleague uh, engaged in this and uh, active and, uh, it, it, you know, just from watching it, uh, the, 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 in those early, for early arguments, the, the Chief Justice was clearly, you know, even turning to uh, Justice Thomas. Um, uh, so I, I think mm -hmm. they probably had some kind of conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Although it, Justice Alito, I think, you know, Justice Thomas has been the first questioner, not only in the first argument, but, you know, the first questioner in, you know, generally when the respondent, the second lawyer to argue, right. gets up. Um, but there was one of the arguments recently, maybe it was the, the Zarnayev case, where Justice Alito didn't wait. He just moved right in. Yeah, but that was after, I think, the lawyer had even said, as, as many of them now are doing after they're, they have, for a couple of terms now, they've had this two-minute opening statement um, and where they're uninterrupted, uh, and then a white light uh, comes on and off and, and indicates to the justices that they can start to ask questions. But a lot of those lawyers have timed out those statements and, and then said, I welcome the court's questions or something like that. And I think in that case that uh, there was no question from Justice Thomas and then the lawyer yeah. started continuing uh, the argument. So yeah, maybe uh, Justice Thomas did not have any questions. It's entirely possible. Um, so, you know, number two, as Mark mentioned, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is fully vaccinated against COVID-19, did have COVID. The, just, the Supreme Court made that announcement on the Friday before the first Monday in October. So Justice Kavanaugh um, missed Justice Barrett's formal investiture, and then he missed the first week of oral arguments. He joined the first week of oral arguments, however, by phone, which for those of us of a certain age who grew up watching the TV show Charlie's Angels had a real sort of Charlie's Angels vibe because everybody else was there. He joined by phone. But, you know, from the sort of before times or even now, um, anybody who's tried to join an in-person meeting by phone knows it's not always easy to get a word in. So this is Justice Kavanaugh trying to join Miss the argument in Mississippi versus Tennessee by phone uh, unsuccessfully initially. Mr. Carlin, I think what you're asking. He did get to he did fear not he did get to join later and Justice Kavanaugh was back on the bench for the second week of arguments. It was interesting. It, it, it went um, more smoothly after the, that for the rest of the week. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the voice the sound was crystal clear <laughs> and uh, uh, props to the court's uh, staff on that. Um, it's funny that we, uh, when, when the court began telephone arguments and Art Lean did his uh, sketch with uh, showing uh, each justice with a different kind of phone, we gave, uh, and I, I, I suppose I, I helped him a little bit with some ideas, and we gave the Charlie's Angel phone to Justice Thomas on the assumption that he, all he needed was the speaker phone to, to listen because he wasn't going to ask many questions, and then he, you know, that's when he started asking lots of questions. And, um, but uh, of course, then people did ask me like, "What's 
what's Charlie's Angels? And what's what's Get Smart? <laughs> Justice Alito yes. had the Get Smart cheap phone. Although I, I suppose it also helped that two of the higher profile cases of the October sitting came in the second week when Kavanaugh was back on the bench. And so easier to do when everyone is there in person. Exactly. So number three on our list, on the first day uh, of argument, the second case was uh, Wooden versus United States uh, about a uh, criminal uh, defendant who uh, had uh, faced a, a stiffer sentence because of some crimes in his past that included um, uh, entering, breaking and entering into 10 mini storage units. And I wrote about this a little bit in view from the court that had shades of the TV show Storage Wars. Um, but the question, the key question was whether those were 10 separate uh, criminal incidents. Uh, and uh, Justice Kagan had a question uh, for counsel that uh, made me think that she, she might've been sort of sending a little message to her neighbor on the bench, Justice Alito, who had, had just made his speech a few days before about the emergency docket and uh, the news media, including some criticisms of the news media. Let's say you're a newspaper reporter and you're trying to write a story about what happened here. I mean, would you ever say something like the facility storage units were burglarized on 10 occasions? Watching that in the courtroom, Justice Alito even turned to Justice Kagan a, a little bit uh, as if to say, uh, newspaper reporter, okay, that's not something I can identify with, but but do go on. <laughs> Number four, uh, the use, of, this is sort of goes to something that, that Mark mentioned earlier, which is that when, as reporters, you leave the courtroom and it's kind of a surprise that other people have been listening to it while we were up there. And that's because the, the use of live audio from the courtroom has been even more seamless than when they were doing it by phone. There has been no grandstanding and there's really been no indication, I don't think, Mark, that anyone in the courtroom, either the lawyers or the justices, is thinking at all about the live audio. If anything, you know, one thing that, that sort of struck me is there's a lot, you, you don't realize until you're paying attention to it, how much nonverbal communication there is. And one at the end of the unstructured questioning, when the Chief Justice turns to his colleagues to ask them whether they have any questions during the, the taking turns, the seriatim questioning, he usually does ask Justice Thomas out loud, you know, Justice Thomas, do you have any questions? But sometimes it just looks like he's at a tennis match. He's you know, turning to each of his colleagues in, in order of seniority, looking at them without actually saying anything to see whether they have any questions without necessarily saying anything at all. Yeah, I did end up uh, listening to one argument um, from this past sitting and, and, uh, and you had mentioned that to me and, and uh, you can hear the Chief Justice even sort of whispering uh, his colleagues' names as he goes. Oh, you can. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you can't hear that when you're sitting further back. Right. Number five on our list. Uh, 
our colleague Joan Biskupic uh, of CNN wrote about uh, this, uh, that there are uh, being back in the courtroom just means there are more visual cues. And in uh, Hemp Hill versus New York on October 5th, a criminal case, um, uh, the attorney representing uh, the Bronx District Attorney's Office, Gina Mignola, uh, was answering a question from Justice Breyer in this case about the confrontation clause. And uh, she, she sensed that maybe she was not getting through and she said this. And that's what was going on here. If again, if you, well, I, I see that you, you doubt what I'm saying there, Justice. No, I'm not doubting it. I just want you to explain Yes, you're hoping that I'll explain it better. But so that kind of visual cue that the lawyers are picking up on uh, has been, uh, was missing during the telephone arguments. And it's one of the things that uh, a lot of them have said that, that uh, they were you know, missing if they did deliver arguments during, during the last 18 months. I think that I've actually talked about this on some earlier episode of the podcast and Breyer in particular is one of the justices where he will kind of give the lawyers feedback, you know, if, if he's getting it or not getting it, there'll be this, if he's getting it, there'll be this sort of aha moment on his face, or you can sort of tell from his face if he's not getting it. And lawyers did say, as you've said, during the, during the pandemic with the, the phone arguments, you just can't, can't get that kind of feedback over the phone. Right. Justice Gorsuch will also give some feedback because he's often quick to say that you're not answering my question. And he uh, visually, he, he even uh, waved his hand at, uh, at least once uh, during this past sitting at, at the argument, some, uh, at, at the lawyer, uh, somewhat dismissively. Now, number six on our list, um, there's been a bit of talk about uh, the justices being back on the bench and, and thus back to the hot bench where they can have these uh, interactions. But so far, things seem a bit lukewarm to me. I don't know what you think about that, Amy. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think maybe knowing that they'll have a chance to ask questions, they're a little bit less likely to, to try and jump in and interrupt. I mean, the the argument, for example, in the Zarnayev case, the Boston Marathon bomber went went long. You know, the the deputy solicitor general Eric Fagan was was up at the lectern for much longer than the half an hour that was initially allocated. Right, and and the chief justice did offer uh, a time to, uh, to his adversary and uh, his his friend on the other side, Mark. Uh, that's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> And she was like, no, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> so, but, but things did really pick up in that Zarnayev argument. Um, uh, uh, there, there was an occasion uh, uh, where Justice Sotomayor was asking several questions of Eric Fagan. Uh, and by my count, she got out seven full questions and, and with, with uh, answers uh, from the government's lawyer. And, and, and then the Chief Justice um, decided it was sort of time to, to chime in. Penalty in particular, and if the jurors were biased on that by something, that might have itself come out in the course of that question. Mr. Counsel, um, the, um, we call this, it's been called a supervisory rule. Now, if I'm going to argue a case in a circuit court of appeal, 
you look at the rules, uh, there's usually a little pamphlet tell you these are the circuit rules. They, they may be supplemental to the uh, uh, Court of Appeals rules. What, what makes this a rule? It seems to me that it's really nothing more. And so I think that is uh, uh, evidence of, of that we're also back to some of the, the courtroom tensions that, that we've seen between those two, the Chief Justice and Justice Sotomayor. Uh, and, and that gives us something to talk about. Um, uh, and, and it just maybe one more indication that things are getting a little bit back to normal. Well, I feel like, you know, usually by the end of June, before they go away for the summer, they're all kind of wearing on each other's nerves. And then they have the summer to kind of recuperate. But you know, this summer, like the last few summers, they've they had all of these different shadow docket applications that they had to deal with, and they never really got away from each other, even if they weren't physically in proximity to each other. And so maybe that's probably not helping. Um, right. But you know, on the other hand, to be fair, Sotomayor in her speech at, was it NYU, and talked about yes. the, the Chief Justice being responsible for this new practice because of the uh, interruptions of the female justices by other justices and by lawyers. So she was giving, giving him some credit. Yes, yeah, so Justice Sotomayor referred the other day uh, to the study that came out uh, a couple years ago uh, by Ton Tanya Jacoby and Dylan Schwears in the it was in the Virginia Law Review uh, about uh, called Justice Interrupted about uh, interruptions on the bench among the justices uh, sometimes by the lawyers um, uh, and she has cited this uh, before and uh, uh, this uh, I went back to this study it's 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 a great um, uh, great uh, study that really opened my eyes to things I'd been seeing on the court for many years and hearing. Um, although I do think they, they those two uh, researchers have a very broad definition of interruption. Um, and that, uh, and this is, you know, something that can, that can be debated. Um, but often uh, the, the justices are, are looking for an opening on this hot bench uh, for, for the lawyer to, to pause or hesitate for even a second, and then they're trying to jump in. And I've described these as face-offs, just from the world of hockey, which which I like, and uh, as where you know one or the other is going to eventually give in, and uh, uh, so you know you could consider those interruptions, uh, uh, but it it, it just it, it shows that that they do want to to seize seize the floor when they can. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I guess I pay less have paid less attention to interruptions. There are definitely male lawyers who argue before the court on a regular basis, who I certainly think will try and just keep talking when some of the female justices ask questions. And so I don't know whether that was part of this study or not, but that also, I've seen it happen. I'm not going to name any names, but I've definitely seen that seen that happen before. So, okay, number seven on our top ten list. Uh, also in the Zarnaev uh, argument, uh, which did go on a, a bit long, um, uh, there there was a pretty dynamic moment uh, between 
Justices uh, Kavanaugh and Kagan. Um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was responding to a point that Justice Kagan had made kind of well, well after uh, she had made it. Uh, Kagan talked about assuming away uh, some of the, the foundation uh, of uh, the, the fact in, in, in this uh, case uh, uh, with the Boston Marathon bomber uh, and, and the question of uh, evidence involving uh, uh, Zokar Zarnayev's brother Tamerlan and, and his role in some other murders. Um, um, so Justice Kavanaugh was asking, you know, or uh, well, asked asked this. Mr. Fagan, at the beginning of this entire line of questioning, you were asked to assume away something, uh, and I'm confused because you were asked to assume away what I think was the district court's reasoning here. And so then that uh, conversation continued a little, and and then Justice Kagan stepped in to say. Uh, that she was only assuming away facts that needed to be found by a jury. And, and then Kavanaugh responded uh, directly uh, to her. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just want to make sure the premise, I mean, the premise yes. was assumed away. The premise was assumed away because that's the role of the jury. Well, I think it's important to discuss the district court's reasoning. And the district court said, we don't know what happened. Uh, and the district court, I mean, maybe to answer Justice Kagan's question, uh, does the district court have a gatekeeping role here or not? And maybe that's Justice Alito's question, too. That, that kind of a sharp exchange <laughs> where the justices are, 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 are just responding directly to each other. They're, they're supposed to be going through the lawyers, but uh, sometimes you know, the lawyers just, just standing there, uh, just watching that. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, as I was reminded by rereading this, uh, the Virginia Law Review study recently would, would sometimes, you know, get involved in, and say, uh, you know, I think we need to involve the lawyers here when, when right. justices are going at each other too directly. One of the things when we talk about oral argument to other people, trying to explain sort of what's going on in the Supreme Court argument, you know, we often say, it's part of the justices talking to each other, and sometimes they really are just talking to each other. Number eight was the argument in United States versus Zubaida, or as the Chief Justice called it, was it Zubaidu, um, <laughs> which is the case of a Guantanamo Bay detainee who was held overseas at several CIA black sites and is trying to get testimony from some CIA contractors about the CIA's torture program at those sites for use in a Polish criminal investigation. And the federal government has asserted that the testimony of those contractors is protected by the state secrets privilege. And the, the, the argument you know, clearly seemed to be favoring the federal government. And Acting Solicitor General Brian Fletcher got up for his rebuttal, which is, you know, relatively short and usually just an opportunity for the petitioner to make a, a series of points. And Justice Neil Gorsuch kind of threw a, a curveball 
Mr. Mr. Fletcher, I don't want to interrupt you later, so I'm just going to do it up front. Um, Why not make the witness available? What is the government's objection to the witness testifying to his own treatment and not requiring any admission from the government of any kind? This was something that that Justice Breyer had raised briefly during the argument of of David Klein, who represented Zubeda, um, but hadn't really pursued. And and Klein had said, well, we can't have him testify because he's being held incommunicado. And and Breyer said, well, have you thought about filing a habeas petition? And Klein was just said, yes, yes, we have actually. It's been pending for 14 years. Um, but so that, that really dominated the, the rebuttal and I can't quite sort of work through in my mind, you know, what effect it would have on the case, even if they said that they would make him available to testify, um, because the, the federal government lost in the ninth circuit. And so there's this ruling against the federal government in the Court of Appeals. Yeah, that was definitely one of the more interesting moments. And again, just would not not have been as easy to 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 have that on the phone because, you know, even uh, Justice Sotomayor joined in and, and uh, uh, if I'm remembering correctly and, and, and sort of supporting uh, Justice Gorsuch's point and, and, you know, them building on each other in a way that the uh, the one by one order just made more difficult. That's right. That's right. So number nine is just uh, an observation that it, for those of us who are in the courtroom, it, it's it's good to get uh, an eye on the, the lawyers who are arguing uh, after Amy's uh, fascinating episode recently of SCOTUS talk with, with Jeffrey Fisher. Uh, uh, I was it was eager to see him argue in, in the Hemp Hill case. Uh, and then I've certainly observed him before. Um, although that day I was, I was late. Uh, uh, that first argument, uh, uh, Brown versus Davenport was a habeas case. And I thought maybe that's one I can listen to. And so I was timing myself to get, get over there by 11. Well, that, that first case the, for the first time in 18 months, it actually ended early. It was submitted at 1052. Uh, and then on top of that, there was a security issue outside the court uh, a suspicious person in a vehicle. So that just as I was arriving on Capitol Hill, it was hard to get parked and get situated and get in. So I was in there a few minutes late, but, but I, I, Jeff, Jeff Fisher has this, uh, interesting way of putting his notes on a, on a file folder and and then turning and folding and unfolding the, the folder. Um, uh, some of the, some of the lawyers, you know, bring up their, their, binders and and even been reading reading their opening statements which i think the court kind of frowns upon they specifically yeah. tell you not to do that in the like guide for lawyers arguing before the court correct and and so then in contrast to that though uh, eric uh, fagan the deputy solicitor general uh in in the zarnaya uh, arguing the zarnaya case uh he's up there with no notes knew the case inside out, new page citations from his briefs, from the joint appendix, from opposing briefs. Um, uh, I, I think it was a very strong performance on his part. Uh, 
and and by his uh, friend as well on the other side. Uh, but but it's just interesting to see see that. Uh, Alexi Colby Molinas, who argued for uh, from the ACLU, who argued on the respondent side in Cameron versus EMW Women's Center, the the abortion adjacent case out of Kentucky involving whether or not the Kentucky Attorney General can intervene to defend Kentucky abortion law. She had notes, I think, but she definitely did not look at them at all when she was giving her her opening statement. She also did a really good job um, during the during the oral argument also knew the case cold. One thing from this uh, different perspective we talked about is that they can see the full bench a little better from where they are, uh, you know, several feet back. Um, and I think some of them like that, but it's, it's not, not presumably not going to stay that way. No, it's, that is something that I think we're probably a while away from the court opening up to the public and letting bar members back in but i will be curious to see how they set up the set up the bar section when they start letting people back in just for some historical perspective uh i think this ended in the 50s but but our colleague lyle denniston was there for the end of this there was a time and I, it's hard to imagine this when there were some seats and some desks for reporters that are, were directly under the bench and they were even kind of facing each other. So in pairs of you know, three or four pairs and that, that couldn't accommodate all the reporters. Of course, uh, I don't know if the other ones sat where we sit normally now, but if, if, if the lawyers arguing before the United States Supreme Court think it's unnerving to be that close to the justices, um, Imagine if they also had, you know, one level down, you know, six or eight reporters looking directly at them. Yikes. I don't think I'd like that very much. <laughs> but they I, would I, like I, it even less. So there's that. I don't think we have to worry about it. I don't think um, I'd like it as a reporter either. Yeah. Last and probably least, uh, we thought we'd end on a lighter note. As many of our listeners may know, the court's junior justice gets to take notes at conference and answer the door. Um, the court's junior justice also gets to sit on the cafeteria committee. So Justice Elena Kagan was responsible for the frozen yogurt machine. Justice Brett Kavanaugh brought pizza to the cafeteria. We returned after near a year and a half out of the court building to find that there is now a Starbucks bar in the court's cafeteria. So. Well done, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, we have no idea when that was planned, whether she had any role in it, but if I were her, I would take full credit for it because it's very popular in the press room. Yes, the, um, I've just been in there once and the, the, the whole uh, cafeteria was redesigned. They used the, uh, the pandemic situation, although it's, it's not open, like you can't sit there and, and the main part of the cafeteria is closed. So they just have some sandwiches and then this Starbucks bar and, and other few other grab and go type things. Maybe we'll get some food from New Orleans since she's from Louisiana. So. That would be good. All right. Thank you, Mark Walsh, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. That was a lot of fun. 
That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.